0: Good morning. It is just such a privilege to get to kick off this series and also to be able to preach in my home church. I was just saying to the worship team when we were all up in the lounge, there's something different about getting to preach in the part of the body that you have committed to putting roots down in. And we are just so excited, Dave and I, to be putting our roots down in City Elam. As Mike said, we were part of planting and pastoring Shore Elam for about 18 years. And then God called us out for a couple of years and we... Um, just sat in church for three years and then last year during lockdown we just felt like God was calling us back to Elam and we make the drive with Bob and Maggie from the beautiful coast nearly an hour some days to get here, but we just felt God calling us back to Elam, and so it's a real privilege this morning to be able to share God's word with you. I know most of you probably don't know me from a bar of soap, so I am married to this handsome guy in the island shirt there. We just celebrated 20 years of marriage this past week, and we have four kids who range from five through to 26, so we well and truly, apart from babies, have our hands in pretty much every stage of parenting at the moment. And actually the last time that I spoke here was six years ago on Mother's Day and I was heavily pregnant with our youngest and our only son. So the rest of our family is made up of girls. And when they were younger, they were much easier, but when they were younger, they discovered a book about codes in an op shop when we were on holiday one year. And they became obsessed with passing messages back and forth to one another in codes. This book was full of all sorts of ideas. You could write a message in lemon juice, you could use hieroglyphics, you could swap different letters of the alphabet out to stand for different letters, and so they would write these codes. And because they were pretty young at the time, the codes were sometimes complicated by the fact that they didn't really know how to spell all of the words that they were doing. So you needed a little bit of extra grace to interpret these messages. But these codes all had something in common. You needed to know how to decipher them in order to understand the message correctly. You needed to know, did you need a torch to illuminate that lemon juice? Did you need a key that told you what each symbol and each letter stood for? And can we just be honest that sometimes the Bible feels a little bit like a code. If you're anything like me, there are days that I open it and I read it and I think, yes, I've got that. That was good word, Lord. And then there are other days that I open it, I stare at the page, the words kind of converge on one another, and I come away and I think, I'm not sure if I understood a word that I just read, and I sure as heck do not know what that means for me here in the 21st century. And I want to suggest that it is in part because the Bible has a code of its own. A code that we are exploring through this series called Types and Shadows. What are Types and Shadows? Quite simply when a person or an event or a place or an object points to something larger than itself, points to an eternal truth or reality, or more often than not, points us to Jesus. Jesus. And that person or event, that object, it has a story of its own, but that is only the first layer of the message, so to speak. And so if we don't understand the significance of these types and these shadows in the pages of scripture, we miss out on the full message that God is wanting us to understand. And it's my great privilege this morning to kick off this series by sharing with you the significance of the image of the temple in the Bible. When Mike said, you can choose whatever you want to talk on, whatever shadow you want to bring, I knew immediately that I was gonna talk on the temple. As Mike said, I've just released my first book and there was a chapter in that book that required me to research the temple. And I'm just gonna be honest with you, I had missed the richness of what the temple means for us here and now as Western believers. Because I don't know about you, it's pretty far removed from my reality. I didn't get up this morning and go out to my backyard and find a lamb that I could bring to be able to come and worship. I didn't go through any ceremonial cleansing process. My kids vetoed certain outfit choices and my daughter told me I hadn't done a very good job straightening my hair. But other than that, I didn't have to go through any elaborate process to be able to come and to worship. So the temple feels a bit far removed for me, but today I want to do Temple 101 with you. I want us to dive into what is the history and the message of the temple, how does it point us to Jesus, and how does it reveal what he is calling us to right here and right now. But before we do, I'm just going to pray. Father, we want to thank you for the richness of your word. We want to thank you for the time that you took to pen it for us, that we might know your heart and we might know your ways. And Father, we just ask this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate and guide us into all truth, that we might understand the message of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I'm going to start the story of the temple today in the book of Exodus with Moses and the Israelites. They are newly out of Egypt. Exodus 19 says they've been out in the desert for about three months, and God calls Moses to himself and he says, I'm going to tell you why I rescued you, why I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you out of Egypt so that I could draw you to myself, so that you might be my treasured possession. Yes. All the nations are mine, but I'm gonna do something really special with you. I'm going to invite you into a covenant relationship with me and I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation set apart for me. But we've gotta remember the Israelites had just been slaves for 400 years. They had no idea what it meant to live as free people yet alone as a holy nation, a people set apart for God himself, a kingdom of priests. They were clueless. So God has to give them some structure. He has to give them some laws so that they can know what does it look like to be a people set apart for a holy, almighty God. So he takes Moses up the mountain, he gives him not only the Ten Commandments but a whole raft of guidelines showing him what this is going to look like. But as part of this, he also gives Moses this instruction. And I'm picking up in Exodus 25, verse 8. He says to Moses, Then have them make a sanctuary, a makdash, a sacred, holy place for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle, this mishkan, this dwelling place, and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And I'm going to suggest to you three gifts today that the temple offers us that are incredibly relevant for walking out our faith. And the first is this. The gift of presence. Why did God want them to build this tabernacle, this sacred, holy place, so that he could dwell amongst them, so that he could be present with his people? And so we see from the inception of the temple imagery in the Bible that a fundamental part of what it means to be the people of God is to live in his presence. You know, Moses later on in Exodus would say to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, we are not going. Because if we don't have your presence, we are no different from any other nation. If we don't have the presence of God, there is nothing that sets us apart. There is nothing that makes us any different from anybody else. Being presence dwellers is fundamental to being the people of God. But God didn't just ask them to create a place, He also asked them to fashion a tangible sign of his presence. He got the craftsman to make what we know as the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. And if there's any Indiana Jones fans, you will know how legendary this Ark is. And he says to them in Exodus 25 still, verse 21 to 22, he says, Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony. The testimony was the stone tablets setting out the laws and the ways of God, reminding them what it looked like to live as his people. He says, Put them in the ark, which I will give you. And there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for the Israelites. Not only the place of his presence, but also the sign of his presence. The Ark of the Covenant were intended to remind us of God's heart to meet with his people. The Ark of the Covenant was considered the footstool of God. That he who sits on the throne, who rules and reigns, had made his footstool among his people. And so it was a symbol to them not only of being under his rule, but also of being under his care and his authority and his presence. And this first temple was not a building. The tabernacle was a tent because these were a nomadic people. And so the presence of God needed to move wherever they were. And what a gift of grace that even in the desert, even in their wanderings, even when they were being faithless, God gave them the ability to meet and dwell with him and to experience the gift of his presence. But there comes a point in Israel's history where it doesn't sit so well with them that God only has a tent. King David has brought peace to the land. They've conquered their enemies. And he says to the prophet Nathan, who's his sidekick, he says, you know, Nathan, I've got this idea. I really don't feel good that I have a palace and God has a tent. I'm going to build him a house. And Nathan says, great idea, David. Do whatever you have in mind because God is with you. Well, Nathan goes away and God says, Nathan, that might have been a good idea, but it wasn't a God idea. When did I ask anybody to build me a house? And he essentially says, I'm not like the other gods. I don't need to be contained to a place. My presence goes wherever my people are. But he says to David, it was good that you had it in your heart to honor me by building a place to glorify my name, but you're a warrior. And you have far too much blood on your hands to build such a sacred dwelling place. That dream, I'm going to let it come to pass, but your son is going to be the one who executes it. And David spends the rest of his years preparing his son, stockpiling treasures and resources so that he can carry out this plan, so that he can build a temple that Solomon would describe as magnificent, as worthy of the one whose name it would bear. And when this first temple is built, we're told this, that as they bought the Ark of the Covenant, into the most holy place that the priests had to withdraw withdraw because the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priests couldn't perform their service for the glory of the Lord had filled his temple. So overwhelming was the presence of God that they had to step back. You know, the temple doesn't only invite us to know what it is to live, to dwell with God. It invites us to encounter his glory, to see how majestic and magnificent he truly is. And as they dedicated this building to the Lord, God said, not only my eyes will be on this place, but my heart And so the temple reminds us that God's eyes are on his people, that his heart is to be with them. His heart is for them to dwell in his presence and to know his glory. But how does this point us to Jesus? We know sadly as magnificent as that temple was, the people fell away away from worshiping God. And we're told that generation after generation turned to false gods. They broke covenant with God. And because of that, they could no longer dwell in his presence. They were exiled, and the temple was destroyed. But as is always the way with God, it was not the end of the story. They might have been faithless, but he was still faithful. And he had prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah that a remnant would return from exile and they would rebuild the temple. And that's exactly what happened. Zerubbabel, a descendant of David, he returns from exile with a remnant and he rebuilds the temple. But let me tell you something. It pales in comparison to Solomon's temple. They didn't have the same resources that David and Solomon had. They were a people who had lost everything. And many of the sacred items that had filled not just the first temple, but also the tabernacle had been lost. The most significant of which was the Ark of the Covenant. And so the most holy place, the place that had been filled with the Shekinah cloud of God's glory, in the second temple, sat empty. And yet I want you to hear what God said about the second temple. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. How? How could this place that physically paled in comparison to the first, how could this place that never housed the ark, that never knew the Shekinah cloud of God's glory, how could its glory exceed that of Solomon's? I want you to fast forward with me to John chapter 1. We read this in verse 14. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle that had never known the Shekinah glory of God, the temple that had never housed the ark, had God himself. The word Jesus, the message of presence, the message of God dwelling with his people, walk in its courts. And do you know what one of Jesus's first public acts of ministry was? It was to cleanse that temple. We're told in John chapter 2 that after Jesus turned the water to wine, he went to this temple and he turned over the tables where things were being sold and people were being extorted. You see, the temple had come under leadership that was not legitimate. It was not not the Levitical leaders, and it had corrupted the practices of the temple. And a place that had been meant to be a place of meeting with God, a place of experiencing encountering his presence, had become a place of burden. And Jesus, he comes and he destroys and clears the way. And the leaders of the time are like, what right do you have to cleanse the temple? They knew that this was a messianic act. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I can destroy this temple and I can rebuild it in three days. And they're like, what? Do you know how long this temple has taken to build? But Jesus wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about his body. The gift of presence that the earthly temples had only foreshadowed was beginning to be revealed in its fullness through the person of Jesus Christ. But there has always been an obstacle to us experiencing the fullness of this gift. And it's called sin. Because how can a holy God allow sin to enter his presence? He can't or he wouldn't be holy. He can't or he wouldn't be just. Sin cannot stand in the presence of a holy God. And the temple speaks to us of this. You and I would have only been allowed in the out of courts. We would not have been able to come anywhere near the Ark of the Covenant, the place of his presence. We could only experience it from a distance and only after ceremonial cleansing. We could only experience it through the priests, the priests who had to be consecrated and cleansed and washed to be able to minister to God. And even those priests could only enter the holy place. They could not enter the most holy place. The only person who could do that was the high priest, and he could only go in once a year, one man from one tribe representing all the people. And we're told in Hebrews chapter nine, that every day, day after day, the priest stands and he performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away their sins. Morning and night, sacrifices had to be offered to allow the Israelites to be a people of his presence. Because God is a holy God but he's also a merciful God. So he gave to them the gift of atonement, the gift of substitutionary sacrifice where the animal bore their guilt, bore their sin and died on their behalf that they might know what it is to live as the people of God. But like Hebrews teaches us, those sins had no power to cleanse on the inside. They didn't last, they had to be offered again and again and again. And they simply foreshadowed Jesus, the one who would come and offer a lasting sacrifice once for all. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read this about Christ's gift of atonement for us. He says, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more? Will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences, make us clean on the inside from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Don Carson says this, he says Jesus becomes the crucial temple, the real and the ultimate meeting place between God God. He is the ultimate priest. The high priests only pointed to him. He is the ultimate sacrifice. The lambs that they offered morning and night could only ever point to him. His flesh is the veil and his shattered broken body is the shattered broken temple that rises on the third day to become the real meeting place between God and sinful people. Because Jesus offers the gift of atonement, we get to experience in greater measure what it really means to be people of his presence. I want you to turn, if you've got your Bible, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In the context of what are probably going to be very familiar verses to you, Paul is exhorting the church at Corinth to live sexually pure lives. And he's saying, your purity is to be driven by the fact that you have been united with Christ. Your body has been joined to his. And because of that, he says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have received from god you are not your own you were bought at a price therefore honor god with your body you know the word that paul uses in those verses for temple it didn't mean the temple generally it meant the most holy place the holy of holies i want you to think about that for a moment The place that only the high priest could enter, the place that the high priest could only go to once a year and only with the shedding of blood has now become what you and I are. Not only do we get to draw near and enter into the presence of God, we house his presence. That Shekinah glory that was once off limits is what now fills us. And Paul says, can you grasp that? Can you grasp how holy and sacred your life has become? You are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. In Romans 12, he would say, in light of all of this, what is our acceptable response? It is to be a living sacrifice. As his life was offered, it is for us to now offer our lives back. We are living sacrifices and we are living stones. You know, in First Peter chapter 2, Peter tells us that we are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. When Solomon built that first temple, The foundation stones were not not cut on site. There was no iron, there was no noise allowed to be on that sacred, holy site. They were prepared away and then bought and placed. And that meant that every single stone had to be cut, had to be prepared in such a way that they fitted perfectly together to provide a solid foundation for the temple. It was true also of the second temple. There was no mortar poured. They all had to fit precisely together. In Ephesians 2, Paul tells us we are no longer strangers, but we have been grafted into the people of God. We have been grafted into Israel, made one with them, that we might be fitted together to rise to become a temple. Do you know what that tells me? If we are living stones, that like those stones that were cut specifically to fit together, your life and my life has been cut specifically by the master craftsman, by God. That means you are in this geographical place on purpose, for purpose. You are in this generational time on purpose, for purpose. You have your giftings, you have your quirky personality traits. Everything about you has been cut specifically so that not only individually might we be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but that together we might be fitted, placed alongside one another to grow into the fullness of all that God intended for his people. But I don't know about you, there are times where I don't want to place my stone. I don't want to be fitted together. I don't feel worthy. I don't feel qualified. You know, Mike said that we had pastored at Elam, and then I said that we um, left for a season, and God called me into itinerant ministry. I was no longer a pastor. I'd resigned my credentials because we weren't part of Elam. My background is not seminary training. I have a law and an arts degree, and I felt, who am I? Who am I to teach the word to write Bible studies? I have no title. I have no movement behind me. Who am I? There's a wealth of amazing Bible teachers out there. I'm not needed, and I began to shrink back from what God was asking me to do. I didn't want to put my stone down. Sometimes I've felt that way as a mum, as a wife. Maybe you've felt that way in the different places that God has positioned you. But you know, every single passage that talks about us being living stones fitted together to form this new temple, the temple of Christ is the temple, we as his body are now that temple, also talks about Christ being the cornerstone. A cornerstone was the first foundation stone laid, and every other stone was measured against it. He is the one who qualifies us. He is the one who makes our lives holy and sacred. And that means that everything you and I do is holy and sacred by virtue of our relationship to the cornerstone. And that also means that no stone is more holy or more important or more needed than any other stone. They are all needed. They were all predetermined to be cut and fit together at this point in time that the body, the people of God, might rise to become all that God intended. Israel couldn't be a kingdom of priests back then. They could only have a line of priests because only the Aaronic descendants could serve the Lord. But we have all been given this third gift, the gift of ministry, because we are all presence dwellers and we are all presence hosts. We all house the presence of God. And by his grace, we get to serve. By his grace, we get to place our stone and be part of what he is building in this time, in this place. And if we don't place our stone, there is a gap. It is a privilege for each and every one of us to house his presence, but also to come and to be fitted together. When you look at those, the tabernacle at the first temple, it was always about community. It was always about coming together as the people of God to serve, to pray, to grow, to learn, to worship. We are called to grow together, to place our stones alongside one another, that like Ephesians says, that we might grow into a holy temple for the Lord, built together into God's dwelling place for the Ruach, for the Holy Spirit. Your stone is needed, and so is mine. Let's never ever forget the incredible privilege that is now ours. Because of Christ's gift of atonement, we receive the gift of presence for the gift of purpose, gift of ministry. Because, you know, those first temples, the people had to come to them. We have now been commissioned to take the temple to the nations. The nations were drawn to the magnificence of what Solomon had built. We are to take that magnificence out into the streets, out into the workplaces that we are in, out into the schools that we are learning in, out into our families. And we're called to place our stone, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, that they too might know what it is to be people of his presence, people who see and encounter his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the beauty of the temple, that though it might feel far removed from our reality today, it speaks still of your heart. That it speaks of your desire to dwell amongst your people. To be present with them. That it speaks of your mercy and your grace. That you would make atonement that we might experience that presence. That it gives us the gift of ministry. That like Hebrews 9 says, Jesus offered the sacrifice that we might serve the living God. And so Father we come today. We come today to offer ourselves living sacrifices, living stones. Build something in us and through us that speaks to the nations of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now as Mike comes, one last thing that I forgot to say that's really important. Just like the first temples foreshadowed something greater, we foreshadow something greater when we take our place. We foreshadow the day that Revelation speaks of when God establishes a new heaven and a new earth when we will no longer need types and shadows because we will see in full. And Revelation 21 tells us that there will be no need for a physical temple because God Almighty and the Lamb will be our temple. And every barrier, physical and spiritual, will be finally removed. And we will forever be the people who dwell in His presence. That's what you and I get to foreshadow each and every day as we offer ourselves back.